Well, this morning, our text is from 2 Kings. Surprise, surprise. And we are, um, today we're in chapter 8, and we're going to be kind of reading through this section that introduces us. um, It it surrounds four kings. Um, uh, One seems to have made a turn in terms of his faith for the good, but the other three are clearly uh, evil kings, as you will see. I invite you just to stand out of respect and honor for the word of God and uh, for God himself. So I'm reading from 2 Kings, um, chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 7 to the end of the chapter. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Then Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, shall I recover from the sickness? And Elisha said to him, go say to him, you shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and he stared at him until he Uh, that's Hazael, was embarrassed, and the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever." In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zair with all his chariots and rose by night. And he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, the king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. 
She was a granddaughter of Amri, king of Israel. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done. For he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. He went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram, and King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know that all Scripture is breathed out by you, that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. May that be true for all of us this day and for the sake of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. And I'd be maybe one, like when I first read this, I was like, man, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> That's a real upper, you know, it's a real boost, you know, an inspiration. Um, and, and let me warn you too. Okay, so just so you know, like how the process for like outlines and sermons goes, I actually have to have my outline done before the sermon gets written. What that means is when I actually go to write the sermon, sometimes it doesn't quite fit exactly what I was thinking with the outline. And just to warn you, like, so my first point really should have been two points, but so it's going to be a little longer than, than points two and three if you're using that in your um, uh, bulletin, your worship guide. Um, so just to warn you on that. Now, one thing I think we should immediately just say is that when we look at our world today, it's not like it's entirely new in terms of the chaos and, and the evil that we see taking place around us. In fact, what we see today was going on then in the days of Israel, in the days of the northern kingdom. And not just the northern kingdom, now it may be a bit of a surprise, but, but now we see this evil where the temple of Yahweh is located, where the law of the Lord is taught. Uh, Now we see the evil of Baalism just spreading throughout the south. And it happens pretty quickly. It should be a warning for us. Um, But it should also cause us not to be surprised at how quickly things um, can change when we're just speaking about the surrounding culture. Well, our narrative starts with God's sovereign appointment of a Syrian by the name of Hazael to be the next king of Syria. So what we learn is is that the king of Syria, Syria is this nation just to the north of the northern kingdom of Israel, and um, the uh, the, the Syrian nation to the north um, is kind of just, they're, they're this kind of chronic enemies at this time. They're, they're the, the Philistines, you know, as the Philistines were enemies of Saul and of David. Well, the Syrians are become this kind of inveterate uh, enemy uh, for the northern kingdom um, at this period, during this period of time. And, and so the king of Syria has fallen ill. He doesn't know whether or not he will recover. He learns that the Israelite prophet of Yahweh, that is Elisha, happens to be in Damascus. And so interestingly enough, he sends his aide, Hazael, to inquire whether or not he will recover. Now, immediately it should be noted that this is full of irony. 
that there is a rebuke of Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, in this behavior of this foreign, supposedly a pagan king. Earlier, uh, when the Israelite king, Ahaziah, falls through the lattice, he's mortally injured. He wonders himself, am I going to recover? But instead of sending aids to the prophet of God, who was readily available, in this case it was Elijah, um, uh, Ahaziah uh, sends his aides, this kind of uh, group, this entourage, to the Baal, to the god of the, the Philistines at, at Ekron. Baal Zebub is, you know, I think a, a, a bit of a mocking way of referring to the god of, uh, of Philistia. But he doesn't go to Yahweh. And so the surprise of the text is here you have this pagan foreign king, and he has enough sense to say, you know what? I see what the God of Yahweh has accomplished. I see what he has done. And if you recall, you know, um, uh, when the, uh, the Syrian army goes to capture Elisha, do you recall that they're blinded? They're taken to the capital city. They're fed. They're given a feast, and they're, they're released to go home. And then later, when the Syrians come down and, and encircle the capital, and they put it under siege, they hear, you know, just this mysterious, ar- invisible army. They think it's real, but it's, in fact, it's invisible. And they flee for their lives, leaving all of their belongings behind. The Syrian king has enough wherewithal to recognize what's going on here. And the irony is, is that the Israelite kings don't see it. They don't recognize what's right in front of them. And it just occurs to me that I think there's a warning here. A warning for those especially who are kind of on the inside, your insiders, A warning for those who are just familiar with the ways of God that you just take them for granted, that you don't really value the riches and the beauty that God has blessed us with. And so you look for other sources. You look outside, whereas you have the foreigners who see much more clearly, oh my goodness, the blessings that you have. How do I I gain access to those blessings? Well, so this serves as, as a, it's, iron, it's irony, and it serves as a kind of rebuke. So the Syrian aide, Hazel, meets with Elisha. And, and just to show the value, I mean, Hazel brings with him 40 camel loads of Syrian goods. He refers, um, uh, you know, he, he's like, you know, your, your son, the king. I mean, just this real deferential way in which this king of Syria approaches the, the prophet of God with great humility and respect and honor. Well, in verse 10, after asking uh, whether the king will recover or not, Elisha answers with this cryptic reply. In verse 10, we see that he says, Go say to him, you shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. Now, this might sound on the outside like, you know, Elisha is saying, yeah, lie to him. Say, you'll recover, but really you're going to die. Really, I think all Elisha is saying is the illness isn't going to kill him. (laughs) He will recover from that, but he's going to die from other causes. Or to put it as one commentator puts it, he says, the king would recover provided you keep your mitts off of him. Okay. Well, we go on to learn that the reason the king will in fact die is that Hazael, his trusted aide, intends to murder the king in his weakened state and to become the next king. And this 
happens within a relatively, um, uh, relatively soon um, after this meeting takes place with Elisha. Indeed, Hazael would become the next king, and he reigns over Syria. And we know this from uh, records outside of the Bible, uh, that he reigns from 843 to 806 BC, roughly 37 years. And indeed, Hazael would prove to be this persistent enemy of Israel. He would be a scourge. He would serve as God's instrument of judgment on the spiritual rebellion and the worship of idols that characterize the northern kingdom of Israel. And so another thing we're meant to see here, this is a theme that runs through First and Second Kings, is that the word of God never falls to the ground. Okay? The word of God is always true. It's always trustworthy. It is money in the bank. And the reason I say this is back in 1 Kings, what what we're seeing here is the story is picking up from something that took place earlier during the the, uh, ministry of Elijah. In 1 Kings 19.15, God says to Elijah this, and and this is when Elijah is fleeing for his life from Queen Jezebel, and um, he's at Mount Sinai, and God says, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Hazael had already been anointed king uh, during the ministry of Elijah. And so the story is just picking up to show us that when God makes promises, they do come to pass. And the interesting thing about Hazael is just from historical records, he didn't come from any... In fact, um, I'm not sure if it's the... Um, uh, if it's the uh, which kingdom it is, but there's a, 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 another kingdom that reports that has this um, little, uh, there's a, a, a message about Hazael, a record, that Hazael was the son of nobody. And, and so when Hazael says, I'm, you know, a dog like me, he's not from uh, any kind of royal background. And so it is, you know, this was not expected that Hazael would become the next king when Elijah uh, pronounces this. And, and in fact, this is what comes to pass. God's word is sure and certain. And just let's remind ourselves, it is not merely the opinions, it's not merely the opinions of human beings, but the word of God has its origin in the mind of God. And we see how God's promise is fulfilled in history with the Syrianate Hazael. And so part of the logic of Scripture is this. This is, this is what we're in part meant to begin to inculcate, is that if God can fulfill his promises, like historically speaking, promises that you can, you know, there's evidence that this was predicted and then this actually happened in, in history outside of even, you know, what the Bible tells us. For instance, we know that uh, Israel was predicted to go into exile. And we know from the prophets earlier, you know, in, with, in, in the case of Isaiah, who's working, you know, I guess 600, uh, at least 100 years prior to the exile, Isaiah is predicting their return back to the land. Well, historically, we, that's, what it, that's exactly what happens. We have all these prophecies ultimately leading up to Christ and, and his return. And so part of the logic of Scripture is, if God is able to fulfill his promises in history, where you can see it, 
you can trust that it's money in the bank, that he can fulfill his promises when he says, your sins are forgiven you. You can trust that he says, I will redeem you. I will bring you through this world and I will bring you safely into my eternal kingdom. Those promises are just as money as the promises we see throughout um, Kings and throughout uh, other portions of the scriptures. And this is um, why Paul says that all God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. And so Paul says, um, and, and he commends the Thessalonians when he says in 1 Thessalonians, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. There's a certain attitude, you know, that Paul's commending the Thessalonians for their attitude and their approach to his preaching and their approach to the word of God. You received it, not just as, you know, like an opinion, but to the degree it's rooted in the scriptures that flow from the prophets and the apostles. It is the word of God. It is true and trustworthy in every way. Well, secondly, the reason we believe that God's promises will certainly come to pass is backed up on another truth. And it's that God is sovereign. (laughs) Why is it that his promises come true? It's because God makes it happen that way. It's because God is almighty and he is almighty over all. That's the other lesson we're meant to understand from kings. He is in control. And not just of the good. <laughs> We're like, woo-woo, you know, he brings blessings. But he's also sovereign over the bad. He's also sovereign over that which is evil. It doesn't mean he's responsible for it, but he superintends it in such a way that it is used for God's good purposes. The world of Elisha's day was under the sovereign will and power of God, in spite of it looking just chaotic and, and just out of control. It was, in fact, unfolding just as God declared it would prior to it happening. That's why he declares, Hazael, you're going to be king. That's what happens. Hazael, and you're going to be a really rotten king when it comes to your treatment of Israel. That also proves to be true. And he says it ahead of time so that you would know this isn't apart from God's will. This isn't like God didn't see that coming. Surprise, surprise, you know, caught God napping or something. It's all under God's hands. And so we we declare with the psalmist who says, in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And on the other hand, we must never conclude from this that God is the ultimate author of evil. We must not conclude. See, the Bible is very clear. God is on the one hand sovereign, and on the other hand, he's nevertheless not responsible for the choices that King Hazael actually makes. He's not the author of that that evil. Listen to Job chapter 34. Uh, This is verses 10 and 12. Therefore, hear me, the Lord says, you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, And the Almighty will not pervert justice. You can trust that in all of God's actions, they are just. Uh, They are holy. 
He is perfectly just, perfectly good, even as he permits and in some mysterious way superintends the evil of Hazael or the evil of modern-day prime ministers and presidents and rulers. We know, however, that this is nevertheless good news for us. Why? Because what it means is, is that the world's not actually out of control. It looks like it's just going, you know, to this apocalyptic future where, you know, the whole planet just becomes a mushroom cloud. But that's, and, and maybe if that's the Lord's will, and, and maybe at the, but that's not going to happen before Jesus returns, okay? So we know that. It is under God's sovereign hand. This is a comfort. We are in God's hands. And furthermore, we also know that evil is not ultimate. This is our resurrection faith. First death, then resurrection. Evil is not ultimate. It will not prove victorious in the end. Because God is sovereign. That which is good and that which is beautiful and that which is true will ultimately triumph. There will be a new heavens. There will be a beautiful new earth, and every tear will be wiped away. So that was the long point. <laughs> but let's move on to Elisha's share, and it'll move a little more quickly. <clears throat> In verses 11 and 12, we read this, and Elisha, after he pronounces that Hazael will become the king, says that Elisha fixed his gaze and stared at him, at Hazael, until Hazael was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. The word of the Lord that Elisha declares to Hazael is a message not just of kingship, but it is a message of coming judgment on Elisha's people on the Israelites. And Elisha is being faithful to God in presenting this message of judgment. But note this, he took no joy in it. It's just the reverse. We're told that even as he sees what's coming, and by the way, that king had previously tried to kill him. Okay, so it's not like Elisha probably has like real fond affection for the king of Israel. But nevertheless, his heart is broken when he foresees the devastation, the suffering and the pain that Hazael and the Syrians would wreak upon Israel. And this is a reminder to us. So Elisha's a good model for us on this, that we don't rejoice when our enemies suffer. We might want to rejoice, but that's, that's inconsistent with, with the Spirit of God that lives in us. Indeed, Romans 12, 15 tells us and reminds us that we are to have empathy for others, that we are to weep with those who weep. We are to have empathy for those who are suffering, those who are going through deeply painful trials. And again, Jesus encourages us on this. He says, blessed are those who mourn. For why? There's light at the end of the tunnel on this. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. I, we've had some losses this year. For some of you who are grieving loved ones, you're like, I don't see that. I don't feel it. Believe God's promise. There is hope at the end of your grief. 
And this is something that Elisha shows us about the heart of God. Ezekiel 18, verse 32, it tells us this, For I, the Lord, have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. That's his message. I don't delight in in your, your perdition. I don't delight in your being alienated from me and dying in that state. So turn and live. This is a message that goes out to every single person in the entire world. Turn and live, says the Lord. For everyone who calls upon the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And hear the heart of Jesus when he's predicting future judgment on the Jews of his own day. He says in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Okay, you would not. Now, going back to the whole sovereignty thing, (laughs) like, how does God's sovereignty work with, you know, these people that that are rejecting him, that are refusing to to find refuge in the Lord, to find refuge in Christ? And and what we have to say is, we want to say that, that, Yes, God is sovereign, but this does not take away. His sovereignty is not the enemy of human agency. It's not the enemy of human choice. We uphold both, okay? Even as we recognize, ultimately, God is sovereign over it all, but it it still allows, in a mysterious way, I, I don't know how to explain it, but the Bible shows us that we indeed have human agency. You know, it's what Joseph tells his brother, you meant it for evil the way you treated me? But God meant it for what? He meant it for good. God is not responsible for the evil choices that uh, individuals make, even as he allows those choices to be made. So I find this quote from pastor and author Philip Ryken helpful. He says, but God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of evil. See, I'll just tell you, some of you think he is. He's not the author of evil. This gives us the freedom to express sorrow and anguish over evil without blaspheming God. We can fight against racial injustice and the violence against children. We can rage against the atrocities of evil kings. We can lament. We can mourn for the loss of loved ones. We can grieve over the sufferings of a lost world. And we can do all these things without standing against God or sinning against his character. We may never know why God permits certain evils to occur. But whenever we have our doubts, we must never forget that evil is God's enemy. Evil is God's enemy. It will not have the last word. And then we move to this last section that I'm just going to cover relatively briefly under this last point. Now, what, what, this last section, uh, beginning in verse 16 to the end of the chapter, what you have to understand is now the camera is shifting. We're shifting from the northern kingdom. We're shifting away from Elisha and what's happening in Syria. And now we're shifting to the south. We're shifting to these two Judean kings. And it's a little confusing because the first king goes by um, both Jehoram, which I think is more of a nickname, to keep him straight because he's more often referred to as Joram. And the reason why this is confusing is the king of the north in the northern kingdom is also King Joram at the same time. 
It's like, you know, you have two bills on the same staff. <laughs> which is which? Well, it's confusing sometimes. And so um, we're moving now to the south, and King Jehoram, sometimes ref- uh, referred to as Joram, is a different king. He is actually the son of the godly king, Jehoshaphat. And Jehoram, however, when it comes to his um, selection of a, a, of a spouse in marriage, he chooses, you can't go much worse. He chooses to marry the daughter of King Ahab and Jezebel. And the results of this is, and, and maybe it's not completely, I mean, he chose her, so that tells you something about where he was spiritually to begin with. Um, what it tells you is that he's making an alliance. That's really what's going on here. But it's without any regard for the faith of the person he is marrying. And so we're told that Jehoram, who reigns, um, he has a co-regency with Jehoshaphat apparently for five years, and then he reigns independently for eight years. But here's what you need to know is, is that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He walks in the ways of the house of Ahab. He introduces Baal worship right in Jerusalem. And when he becomes king, he murders all of his brothers and even some of the princes around him to make sure there weren't competitors to the throne. Jehoram is an evil king, okay? And, but he, you know, I guess, thankfully, he only lasts a relatively short reign of eight years as an independent king. And then his son is a, um, uh, Ahaziah, also the name of a northern previous king, so that's confusing. Ahaziah only reigns one year, but is, you know, you think about who his mom is, the daughter of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And so she wreaks this awful influence over the kingdom. We're going to see how she takes power herself going forward. But um, so what we're introduced to is suddenly the southern kingdom has just made this mighty shift from a relatively godly king in Jehoshaphat, and they do a 180-degree reversal with these two kings. But the highlight of this passage is that God's covenant— provides hope. So God's covenant provides hope. And we see this little reference. This is really the heart of this passage. It's in verse 19. And there we read, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. Why? So Judah at this point, they're provoking God, but he's not willing to bring down the hammer. Well, we're told why. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah For the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Our author says that God did not treat these kings of the southern kingdom in a manner that was consistent with the evil they were performing. And the reason for this was the unconditional promise or the covenant that God had made with their ancestor, King David, roughly 140, 150 years previous. Um, Because of this covenant that God had made, the covenant promises, God is treating these southern kings, he's giving them special treatment is is what our passage is telling us. And what this is telling us, um, uh, well, it's it's going back to the promise that God gave to David, and and the heart of that promise is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. And there we just, we learn this, that God says, your house, that is the house of David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
This was this unconditional covenant, this unconditional promise that God makes with David that somehow David will have a king on the throne and and ultimately a, a throne that will endure forever, okay? An eternal throne. And this quickly became understood as a promise of the coming Messiah, of the coming messianic king, a, a man who would be greater than his father, David, you know, his ancestor, David, who would in fact reign. He would reign over a far greater kingdom and he would reign forever. So that's the covenant that God makes with David. And what we read here is because of this covenant made 150 years earlier, that God is like, he can't bring himself to give them what they deserve. And this tells us something about what covenant is about. And as, as, you know, as I go forward, I'm going to be paying special attention to this idea of covenant because now it's going to be part of our name. Um, and I want us to like, begin to appreciate the richness of this idea of covenant. Now, in general, when you're a child and you're learning about covenant, you know, what is a covenant? Well, it's simply a solemn agreement made between um, God and one or more persons, this solemn agreement. And so in that sense, it's, it's kind of like God is making promises. But a covenant goes beyond this. It's more than just a contract. So you can make, um, you can make treaties with other nations. You can, well, marriage is viewed as a kind of covenant. And that's a good example of a covenant because what it shows you is that where a covenant, and especially a covenant with the Lord is made, it's not just about one side has you know, rules that, or, or promises they're going to keep, and the other side has made also their own promises and they're going to keep. And, and if one side fails to, you know, make their, to keep their promises, in most cases, that covenant would end. Except where a covenant is a one-sided covenant, which the, the, these covenants often in the Bible are one-sided, where God himself says, like with David, I'm just going to make this promise, and it's not going to be conditioned on whether you keep any promises yourself. I'm going to do this. <laughs> and, and in this sense, we, we refer to these kinds of covenants as a covenant of grace. That's what he's referring to. Is, or sometimes, you know, the Bible refers to it as a covenant of peace. Um, theologians refer to it sometimes as a covenant of redemption. And it establishes God's people in a relationship with God. And in these covenants of grace, God takes the oath. He promises to keep the covenant regardless of the behavior of the other party that enters into the covenant uh, with him, okay? And so this tells us that a covenant is more than a contract. What a covenant does is it brings you into a relationship. That's what Christianity is. The new covenant, the covenant that Christ makes with us, is a covenant that brings us into a special relationship with God. And it has all kinds of promises attached to it. But what I want you to see here in this passage is that the covenant conditions our relationship with God. In other words, there's no reason why God couldn't have brought judgment and still fulfill, technically speaking, his promise to one day bring a descendant of David, just make sure there's one, and get to Jesus, and then Jesus becomes that eternal king. That's who the Messiah is, that these promises are fulfilled in Jesus. But what we're seeing here is the covenant conditions our relationship with God so that God 
His attitude towards us because of the covenant relationship is one of kindness. It's one of love. You know, we were talking, I think a good illustration is um, our biggest church in our, in our little presbytery is a church in Michigan called Ward Church. Um, and, and they've been the biggest historically, uh, you know, over, uh, you know, 1,500 or so members now, but it used to be like 3,000. In any case, a little church near them was struggling. And it had $500,000 of debt, and it was um, coming really to the end of its life cycle. And this little church petitioned Ward to say, look, we don't want our ministry to end. Would you be willing to assume our property and our debt (laughs) and allow us to to minister with your people, and, and, and you take leadership, but to continue a ministry through our church and our community? It's interesting, the pastor of Ward Church got up and spoke to this issue, and he said, when I first heard that, you know, you think about it in terms of, okay, what are the pros and cons? What's the financial impact? And he said, you know, at first, that's what runs through your mind, but the very next thought was, it's not just an issue of finances. It's not just an issue of, you know, strategy and numbers and... and um, it's an issue that we're family. And he said that became, I, and when it became an issue of family, my idea, my relationship, my decision-making process was biased. He said that wasn't true of my elders. So we had to have their elders come over and just, you know, share their hearts. And, and they realized it's not just about the numbers because on a numbers leg, it doesn't look good, but they're family. And so we're going to act differently. And that's what covenant means, that God is in relationship with you. And he doesn't treat you as he does the world. That's not in the special covenant relationship. He treats you with kindness. He treats you with love, the steadfast love, because covenant makes us family with God. And it's bound together with all of these wonderful promises. Well, I have to stop there. Thank you for being patient. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, follow this time of worship with the blessing of your people here and in all places. Lord, incline our hearts to always seek the light and the beauty of your word and to love the fellowship of your Holy Spirit, that we may have power to imitate him whose life in the flesh was given up to your will. We pray these things in the mighty and powerful and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.